it, Daniel. Just click, there should be like a little X at the top that says. Um, There's a bunch of buttons on your screen. Just figure it out. You're an adult man. <laughs> I heard Connor. Oh, here we go. Uh, large grid. There we go. That's See, better. There you go. Exactly. You uh, finally. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't need your help, Connor. Exactly. That's what I'm trying to motivate Dead, you. Dead, Connor! Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 69. Nice. Today, the topic, lest you didn't guess, is erotic movies, sex and cinema, and horny movies. Because uh, for the last 69 episodes, Daniel and Connor... More so than Edwin will often refer to a movie as horny and I get it. I totally get it, but I'm fascinated by the use of that word. Maybe overly fascinated. I don't know. We'll get into all of it. Who is with us today? Hey, it's, it's Daniel. Hey, it's me. Connor Lloyd Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. I'm on a computer. That's new. Yeah. From a different angle too. The angle of Edwin's room is just Beverly Hills Ninja and say anything poster and about five Coca-Cola cans stacked, which by the way is great production design. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, and, I am Craig. I'm the founder programmer of Secret Movie Club. It is wonderful to have the gang reassembled again. So I think it's been four weeks since we've recorded all four of us. It's been a minute. Wow. Uh, but we're here. Announcements at the head of uh, today's episode. Uh, we had to reschedule three of our events last week because I had to tend to family matters. So over the next few weeks, you might be hearing some events that you're like, wait, I thought that already happened. Well, actually, Fassbender's Fear of Fear, the Jim Jarmusch double of Stranger Than Paradise and Down by Law, and then Kislowski's Three Colors White all got rescheduled. So if you wanted to see those, just keep your ears perked. This week, by the time you hear this, Friday night, we are going to be doing kind of a crazy double, totally works, I think, but get ready because it's crazy. We are doing Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring, and then we are showing Wes Craven's original The Last House on the Left from the early 70s, often considered one of the parents of scuzzy 70s horror, which would then give birth to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Toby Hooper's original movie, and then uh, Wes Craven's more polished, which is weird to call it that, but it is, The Hills Have Eyes from the late 70s. But Last House on the Left is often considered one of those litmus test horror movies you can either take it or you can't it's just so funny that it's literally the story of Bergman's The Virgin Spring which itself was inspired because Bergman was so taken by Akira Kurosawa he wanted to make a Kurosawa movie and he often doesn't consider The Virgin Spring a Bergman movie he considers The Virgin Spring Bergman doing Kurosawa and then Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater we are doing a Schwarzenegger double feature Terminator 2 and Total Recall on 35mm starting at 11am and then Saturday night we're actually doing the rescheduled Three Colors White on 35mm at 7.30pm and then Three Colors Red on 35mm this was wasn't intentional, but the nice thing about doing those two back to back is that the characters from Blue, Red, and White all reoccur in all three movies. But if you don't see the movies together, it's so subtle you you don't see it. And now you can actually pick up a little more on the connectivity because we'll be doing two of the movies back to back. And as always, you can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com, podcast at secretmovieclub.com, and you can check out all the events at secretmovieclub.com. We've already started to announce a lot of our September, including 
including today, we launched a September 18th Last Temptation of Christ on 35mm at the Secret Movie Club Theater, and then Thursday, uh, September 23rd, a David Cronenberg double bill of Videodrome and Eastern Promises on 35, which was done essentially because I wanted to show Cronenberg on 35, and then I realized those two movies are really interesting together because one of them is about a character who succumbs to a cult-like code, and one of them is about a character who actually resists fully succumbing to a cult-like code. So come see early and late period Cronenberg. And can we also plug on YouTube, you can watch the redub of Attack of the Giant Leeches that we did with The Resistance that finally got released. Absolutely. Connor Lloyd Cruz did a uh, yeoman's job of basically putting together a bunch of people who didn't really know how to record together, live dubbing <laughs> something they were watching off YouTube. And it is Gene Corman produced, the brother Roger Corman, Attack of the Giant Leeches in the public domain. I am very biased because I was part of that just listening and part of it, but it's free. Enjoy it. It's like Mystery Science Theater 3000, only maybe a little raunchy. Year. And by the time you hear this, it will be a little too late for this one. But The Resistance is coming into the Secret Movie Club Theater this Thursday to live dub a 35 millimeter print of El Ultimo Squalo, which translates as The Last Shark, which was also known as Great White. They are going to just do what they did when we showed Yeti, Giant of the 20th Century, a year and a half ago. They are going to live dub it on the fly. We would love to have you. We hope to do more um, cinematic experiments and projects like that. And you can hear The Resistance doing what they do best forever now because of Connor's good work when you listen to Attack of the Giant Leeches, which is available on our YouTube channel. So you just go to Secret Movie Club YouTube and listen to it. Hey, I have a hot take, but Last Temptation of Christ, a horny movie. <laughs> All right, moving on with the uh, just elegant and graceful transition of Last Temptation of Christ being a horny movie. This is Secret Movie Club Podcast 69. Yeah. And uh, we are going to talk about erotic movies, sex and cinema and horny movies, all of which are very related, but not quite the same. And I would use this distinction. I think you can make an argument that David Cronenberg's crash which is about auto accident victims who become fixated on wounding themselves and having sex based on a J.G. Ballard uh, novel is an erotic movie for sure. And it has sex in, in it. It has a lot of sex. It's rated NC-17. But I don't know that you would actually call it a horny movie in the sense that everybody would uh, view it and say, oh, that's a horny movie. A lot of people would be turned off by it. A lot of people would say this is not a like sexy at all. And other people would be like, oh, I get it. So I think this topic is really fascinating. By way of an introduction, what I want to say is sex in movies, horny movies, erotic cinema, I've always been obsessed with, as I'm sure a lot of people are. But as a filmmaker, I'm obsessed with it because I absolutely think those movies should be made, but I feel they're probably the hardest things to make. And the conclusion I've come to is that often when you think of porn or you think of sex in movies, I think that what happens is the whole story stops for a sex scene. And what happens is you realize it's not like other movies where they carefully, every scene is progressing the plot and story. I know that sounds weird, but even the greatest musicals, a good musical number, you'll end up in a different place story-wise than you did at the beginning of the musical number. And I am convinced that 
if I were to make a sexual film, the thing I would try to do is make sure that every sex scene advanced the story and advanced character in some way. And yet when you watch quote unquote erotic movies that aren't pornos, oftentimes the whole movie stops and instead the director is like, would be a really hot, adult, respectful sex scene. And you're I actually wrote down sex scene and like I wrote the X weird and it said set scene. It made me think about it like from that point of view, like the sex scenes are like a set piece in the way like an action scene would be almost in some of these movies but i think sex is a weirder thing to have be a set piece than action i think it's like maybe harder and i think the best action movies the action scenes do progress the story even if it's just as simple as a character escaping from somewhere the few times i've seen movies that have quote-unquote like big sex scenes it always feels very distracting when you get to it it always feels like the movie just like slams on the brakes (laughs) i would argue Maybe they do it more in Europe, and I think that's fair. I think the erotic movie or sexuality in movies in Europe is like, what's the big deal? But in America, I just don't know that America has ever been great at sex and cinema. Occasionally, but not super great. I am on a personal level very horny all the time. That's my secret (laughs) cap. I'm always horny. I think that might be like maybe a shock to a certain degree because I think I don't necessarily come off as very horny. When a movie, I don't like romance stuff anyways. But that's different. It is different. But a lot of times movies with sex are sort of tied into that a lot of the times. And when when that's the thing, it's just not attractive to me in that sense. And then whenever it's a little more abstract and the sex is just kind of sex, I think I sometimes just like, I'm like the wolf in the uh, awooga. (laughs) Yeah, in the Tex Avery cartoon. I have my own like hang ups when it comes to like sex and romance that I'm 100% not going to get into that also make it kind of difficult I actually tend to not write romances and sex and like stuff I've written to the point that I've had teachers like I remember I wrote this script with like a male and female leads and like I had a a professor be like why aren't they getting in love with each other which is its own issue because like that's kind of silly that you would have to do that but the use I always like the most that resonates with me because of my own personal hang-ups is when it's used as like horror (laughs) because i think that resonates with me a little bit more i think about like i think lynch uses it a lot like that where like sex is this kind of like horrible thing uh i think for cronenberg it's used like that a lot of the times i think about in videodrome it's this sort of like weird revolting disgusting thing i think the times that i have written stuff in scripts it tends to be on that line so i don't know maybe i I think maybe I should be having this conversation with my therapist. (laughs) I think you bring up a really good point, which is that it's also, it seems to me, cinematically pretty defensible that that through the side door approach to sex is what works cinematically. It's the fact that they're turning it on its head somehow. I mean, sex and Lynch is always integral to the plot and sex and Cronenberg is always integral to the plot and the plot happens to be horror. So, I, I mean, I don't know that it's so much I got to talk to my therapist as maybe they're smart filmmakers <laughs> who understood that that's how you use sex in cinema. I, I mean, I don't know. Malcolm Dow comes to mind for his, one of his great performances he's ever done. I'm not talking about Clockwork Orange. I'm talking about his greatest role of erotic films, and that film is Caligula. That's right. I went out there. I went I went to a real erotic film. Produced by Bob Guccione, the publisher of Penthouse. Very slightly horny movie. But uh, also, what nice sets for a very good, epic, horny movie. I uh, saw it when I was 17. It blew me away, because I thought this was a straight-up porno, but... 
it's a softcore porno from what I've been told, I think. Uh, Malcolm McDowell is having the time of his life in that movie. Like, every movie he does, he loves to get naked. And this movie, he's naked all the time. So that's, like, no problem for him. Caligula is about a uh, Roman emperor who is, like, the most evil bastard that ever lived. And the way Medal portrays him in the movies, I'm pretty sure that's spot-on correct. And he has some thing with his sister, which is weird. And uh, Helen Mirren. Oh, my God. Helen Mirren. Talk about a babe. What would you do if Helen Mirren was your grandmother? I'll be like... Remember Caligula? <laughs> Remember you did that? That was awesome. You did Caligula. She'd probably be down to talk about it, too. She seems pretty cool. I think she would be, too. And uh, Do you know who was a couple back in the day, in the early 80s? Liam Neeson and Helen Mirren met on Excalibur. And you should YouTube Liam Neeson. They're like talking now on some British, you know, talk show. They're both, you know, life has moved on. But you can tell they're still very like affectionate. And Neeson tells the story about how he walked on the set and saw Helen Mirren in the distance and just like swore in a very Irish way. And on this talk show, she looks at him and she's like, you never told me that story. <laughs> I was like, whoa, the Neesons and Mirren. That's like a power couple. Anyway, keep going. Caligula. Caligula is probably the weirdest erotic film ever made and I don't take that over Eyes Wide Shut because I do not like Eyes Wide Shut and if I had to pick a good erotic movie i go with Caligula and there's a quote that I said in the beginning of the movie which I memorize which is I have existed for the morning of the world and I shall exist to the ah <laughs> I literally lost the line I lost the line. I was going to mention, they got two big actors in this movie. Two? Five. Well, Helen Mirren doesn't count because she, she, she was still up and coming, but... Wait, McDowell, Mirren, Peter O'Toole. And John Gilgood. That's four. I mean, those are Shakespearean-trained, world-class actors. All of them. Yeah, and they're in a porno together. Isn't that weird? I think they were lied to. I'm pretty sure they were. People should have fact-checked me on this because this is me just repeating a story from memory. But my understanding is that Bob Guccione promised everybody that they were making a respectable epic and that he was trying to do what Hefner had done 10 years earlier when Hefner financed Macbeth. Uh, I said it, the Scottish play. Yeah, where, you know, Hefner just wanted to make good movies. And then after the movie was done, Guccione cut in all these cutaway soft core scenes that didn't involve those actors. And those actors were like furious because suddenly they were in this Euro trash, softcore Roman porno and they thought they were in like Spartacus. Also, Spartacus is a horny movie too. I think Daniel maybe should explain, I'm thinking we probably have the same idea, the difference between what a neurotic movie is and a horny movie is. I think... I'm cautious I'm in a hotel room and how loud I yell this into the hallway that can get me. <laughs> in my interpretation, I think horny is a mindset. It's this radiating energy that a movie perpetuates. It doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be sex in the movie, but you feel it in yourself and you feel it in the characters on screen. And to go back to a common thread, like Mamma Mia is a horny movie. Oh, God, come on, man. Everyone in that movie, even though they're not directly speaking out, out loud, all they're thinking about is sex. And it radiates in their decision making and in the songs. Musicals in general are, are pretty horny. Would you say that like a big difference is that like an erotic movie you couldn't watch with your mom, but a horny movie you could? Honestly, yeah. I think in a lot of respects, horny movies are very popular with, with moms. And they don't necessarily 
like they might be like, oh, I love this movie. We should watch it together. And they might not realize that it has that energy, but they feel it in the core. I think corny is like a mindset versus what you're seeing. It's sort of the aura, the vibe. The James Bond movies are a good example are horny movies, but aren't really erotic movies. And there's just some people there's like you get some actors sometimes, too. Like I think our current actor, like Adam Driver, just radiates this like energy where he just feels like sexually charged, even in stuff like in The Last Jedi. It's not inherently a movie about that but you feel you feel it those high-waisted pants yeah you just brought up something really fascinating which is one of the elements of star power star charisma in the entire history of cinema has been how people straight lgbtq or whatever feel an attraction to the person they're watching on screen whether or not the actual subject matter of that particular movie is sexually related or not i mean the example i always think of is paul newman paul newman could be in anything I mean, Paul Newman could be a courtroom drama. I mean, we watched um, HUD, which he is a very bad person, really, in that. But you feel... He's still oozing. There's just an energy. Yeah, that's what I mean. There's like an energy to him that he just radiates, that sort of brings that in. This guy f***s. Yeah, it's that, and it's, I think it's difficult, because I think if you set out to make a quote-unquote horny movie, you might not necessarily succeed. I think it kind of becomes that in the way that's directed, and the way the actors are giving to things, and the way that you shoot and your music. Every decision brings into that vibe. Because at the same time, I wouldn't say, like, like Craig was saying, there's erotic thrillers that I are not horny. No, thank you. And then some kind of have a, a middle ground. A great example, I would say, would be Basic Instinct, which is both horny and an erotic thriller. And then everything that tried to be Basic Instinct missed the horniness. Got me worked up. A little confused. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> I was thinking about like old, like pre-code 20s, 30s Hollywood full of like nudity and like general horniness stuff. Daniel just licked his lips, by the way. My eyes, to be fair, my lips are very dry. I'm in Florida. Well, I have chapstick. That was not an intentional maneuver. But that doesn't explain why you took off your shirt at the same time. It's just hot and I needed to breathe. Talking about like sex and stuff in, in film uh, and nudity in film. I think we're in this weird thing from like a, a big filmmaking perspective where it's a pretty sexless. Oh, it's awful. Realm of movies. A lot of the big stuff that's out, there's just no, which I think it's sometimes a choice, but it also just avoids any sort of conversation or it's really interesting to me that it's sort of where it's very like sterile love stories and big pictures right now are pretty like cut and dry. And there's this obsession, I think, with, you know, they're like, we want to represent people, but representation is like a three minute background kiss in a Star Wars movie. And you're like, oh, that's your idea of that. I think it's kind of frustrating because I, I agree with you guys that I think I actually like Connor's thing a lot about that, that it sort of works as a set piece that you plan around it. It's character based and it moves the plot forward. But at the same time, done in the right way, I think some people can get away with it. Sometimes like just a, a horny little scene in the middle of something, it changes the tone of stuff. So maybe that is working for the plot, but it also sets a specific mood. It tells you a lot about character and relationships and without speaking a word, it's kind of this visual tool. But I think the big thing for me is the successful horny power, the successful sex power is it needs to empower rather than objectify. So I was going through trying to make movies that are sort of, because there's so many, like so many great erotic thrillers and there's a lot of great horny content. But I was trying to think of current sort of newer things that are pushing for like what cinematic sex is right now. I think a lot of it is people trying to figure out how you shoot these things with a focus on empowering versus objectifying. The shared experience between male and female nudity or any gender identity nudity that is in character. Because I think, you know, you have to be subjective to the character. You have to talk about the character's experience rather than it just being, you know, shots of, of a butt. Like this is the silliest example, but I think because of how I viewed it with the people I viewed it with, Munich has this insane sex scene that just feels wildly out of place. It's like slow motion, sweats flying, and there's cutbacks to these horrible moments. 
and it speaks a lot to character, but it, you don't feel it does not have the age factor, nor is it trying to. You don't need it either. No, you don't. I, don't, I can't imagine. You, I guess you could re-edit that and make it that, and it'd be horrifying. There's sort of this interesting thing, I think, in the way, and maybe this is definitely personal preference, but there's like sort of the focus and like equal pleasure and stuff. I think so much of what's come before is all about male pleasure in the characters and in like the audience. It's built around that idea. So I'm, I'm super curious to see sort of filmmakers working today, what they'll do with that. Because you don't get many. And when, when there is a good one, it sort of stands out. Recently, there's been, and it's kind of a spoiler, not really a spoiler. I'll preface it. This is a spoiler of a five second moment in Annette, the new um, Leos Carrick's movie with Adam Driver, who again radiates that but there's a musical number and there's a musical number set to a um, a sex scene between the characters and it really wraps their relationship and how some of it's defined in their physicality and there's a moment where adam driver's character is going down on the other character and he he pulls back and she she's singing while he's down she's singing this song and then it the camera pushes down and adam driver comes up from it to sing his verse and then returns <laughs> and it's it's incredible. It's like the craziest, like an, the audience went nuts. But it's sort of these interesting ways to sort of approach things. Because it's, it's, yeah, it's to get back to the thing, I think it's wild how, how sexless, like, big blockbusters feel right now. Especially because they, they have all the stars. So if star power sort of is that, which is why I was thinking The Last Jedi has that. The chemistry between Daisy Ridley and Adam Driver feels palpable on the screen. And though it's not inherently sexual, it feels... It is a very weird moment because anybody who's watched comedies from the 80s specifically knows that they were filled with nudity. And uh, when looked back now, a lot of that nudity is problematic. There's no doubt. A lot of that nudity was clearly shot and made for teen boys without any consideration about the ramifications for anybody else. And we're in a different era and it's good. We're in a different era. I think what's been lost is the celebration and the exuberance and the fun of sex, which is uh, when I talk to my, I have three children now and I hope to God they never kill somebody, but I do hope to God they have sex one day if they want to have sex. And yet, and I know this is said all the time, and yet we're a culture that's much more comfortable talking about mass murder on the screen or individual murder on the screen than we are about people enjoying sex or being like, ah, this is fun. I enjoy it. The two movies that I wanted to shout out, there are way too many to go into, but one movie that I feel really lands the plane, and it's a great movie called The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which uh, was directed by Philip Kaufman based on a Milan Kundera, a Czech novel. And it stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Juliette Binoche, and Lena Olin. And it's all about this serial adulterer played by Daniel Day-Lewis in the 1960s in Prague in the Czech Republic, and he marries Juliette Binoche, and they're really in love with each other, but he can't stop fooling around. And he has a full-time mistress played by Lena Olin. And the movie, really, when you have the sex scenes, they do move this story forward, and they do develop character, and they are really intensely erotic. And what was interesting to me was, at the same time, the movie is about how these characters get sort of consumed by the tidal wave of the communist invasion of the Czech Republic to bring down the Czech Spring. And so there's interpersonal things going on and political things going on and sexual things going on. And then Philip Kaufman tried to outdo himself, I felt, by making this movie called Henry and June. Yeah, Henry and June stars Fred Ward, Uma Thurman, and um, I, I'm forgetting the actor's name. Uh, she's in Pulp Fiction as Bruce Willis's girlfriend in the Gold Watch section, and she plays Anais Nin. Henry and June is about writer Henry Miller, his wife June, and their threesome relationship with the writer Anais Nin in France in the 1920s. And it's an interesting movie, not a bad movie, but because 
it goes all in on this idea that we're going to be the first NC-17 rated American movie. It suddenly becomes about that in a way that I think is detrimental to the movie, whereas Unbearable Lightness of Being was an R-rated movie that had a lot of sex, but wasn't feeling like it had to wave the banner of sexuality. It sounded like it was like a gimmick, essentially, in its essence, the NC-17 thing, what you're talking about with the sex. You'd have to see Henry and June. It's just not organic. I mean, the movie says, hey, we're about these writers that wrote about, you know, Anais Nin and Henry Miller are famous for being banned because they just wrote so explicitly about sex. I get it. But you'd have to see the movie to feel like this is somebody who feels like it's like when someone thinks they're an important director and they're like, now I have to make a movie about racism. Now I have to make a movie about And now it's like you, Philip Coughlin's like, now I must make a movie about sexuality. And you're like, ah, OK, you know, it's not a, again, not a bad movie. Everyone should see it. I just don't think it's as successful. And Edwin mentioned Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, which I love. I think it's one of Kubrick's best films. But what I would say is the irony is this. Kubrick had been wanting to make a blue movie since the 60s. That's what they used to call him. He, he wanted to make basically a porno that was a worldwide hit. And he had this novel by Schnitzler called Traumnovel, Dream Novel. And that novel is what eventually became Eyes Wide Shut. And the story is exactly the same, except they transposed it from Austria to America, yada, yada. But what's interesting to me about Eyes Wide Shut is I feel that Kubrick eventually came to the conclusion that he wasn't going to make a horny movie. He wasn't going to make an erotic movie. There was going to be nudity. There were going to be orgies. It was going to be about male and female sexuality. It was going to be about a husband and wife. But I find that movie, interestingly, not to be very horny. I find that movie, interestingly, not to be super erotic in the sense that I think he's really delving into the psychology of a husband and wife. And he decided actually for the movie to work cinematically, it wasn't going to. And the orgy sequence really is about Bill being out of his league. This is the revolutionary thing I think about Eyes Wide Shut is that Bill realizes he's more comfortable being a monogamous male in a married relationship with his wife, Nicole Kidman, than everything he's been led to believe he should feel as a heterosexual man. And I think that's Kubrick making, again, one of those Kubrickian observations that's brilliant. And I think that Nicole Kidman is equally comfortable being monogamous, but she has a sexual imagination, as we all do. And she reminds Bill, you can't treat me differently than you treat yourself. You have fantasies about other women. I have fantasies about other men. We are, in the end, human and gender had plays a very small role in sexual imagination and sexual inclination. Sex and film stuff is almost, it has this like religious subtext to upbringing where it's shot and portrayed where it feels taboo. And there's a story that Josh, who works with us at the movie club, that he, when he was a kid, he wanted to watch Titanic. It was the big thing. All of his friends were talking about it. He wanted to watch the movie. And his parents sort of warned him like, oh, it has, you know, it has these moments and it's going to have nudity and people are going to do some stuff we have to talk about. And they were worried that that was going to be the thing that really set off this young boy watching this. And when the movie ended, he was sobbing because he just watched 1,200 people brutally die. <laughs> but they thought nothing of the violence of it and sort of the emotional devastation of this tragedy. It was not a thought. It's so interesting because it was the same in my family. There's With what we're brought up on and sort of the stuff we're exposed to, violence becomes this thing that we are taught to associate as fiction versus reality. But sex is this thing. I always talk about like, well, you know, we don't do this. And there's this interesting thing, I think, with that's happening with younger generations, that it's becoming this talking point that people are trying to make it where they're comfortable having conversations about these things, because it is this thing that it's this like beautiful gift that people can, if they'd like to, if they 
consent to experience or not experience. Like it's this personal decision, but having it be this locked away shameful thing is, I think, very devastating. Was very devastating to people who resent the concept of it and they don't want to show it to their kids. It's this like thing that like, well, we don't talk about that, and it only makes it a bad thing. It feels like a very American culture thing in terms of the prioritization of sex and words over like depictions of violence it's the thing we were talking about with the dark knight versus rushmore rushmore has like you know what two f words and you see like a nude woman in the background and the dark knight doesn't have those things but has all these people being stabbed and thrown off buildings and all this stuff and you know it's just like sex now it creates a classification like a rating same with the language that's it's so bizarre because i think if you just list what's in a movie, then a parent can decide, I can talk to them about these things, I'm going to wait a little bit on this. But instead, it's given this like firm thing of, well, it includes this one thing, therefore it is unfit for being viewed by anyone under a certain age group, even though the age group that it's under are the people that need to have conversations about it. This also now gets into like a broader like discussion about American culture and like the idea that I think that because we are so founded on violence that we can't reject violence in that way. So we have to be okay with it because if violence is something that you recognize as like being bad, then you have to like reckon with how much violence like our country was founded upon. I'm, I'm sorry. We can keep it horny. I'll shout out three things very quickly. One is I do actually think that a lot of the MCU stuff is horny just by essence of how attractive a lot of those people are. They do have a running joke about how nice Captain America's ass is in Avengers Endgame. Show it to us, you cowards. The other thing I had written down, like going back to that horror stuff, is I think about like From Beyond is like a really interesting <laughs> use of sexuality in a movie. The characters, their pineal gland is stimulated in their head, which like opens their brain to like more sensory stuff. It's kind of like the Hellraiser thing. We'll take you to a realm where pleasure and pain are intertwined. I think Hellraiser's pretty horny. Oh, Hitchcock was horny too. Oh, oh yeah. Trains going into tunnels. There's one movie I had in mind. It's probably one of the greatest superhero movies ever made. I'm talking about Orgasmo. Also another very cool erotic NC-17 movie that doesn't show a lot of stuff, just men's butts and dry humping, which is hilarious. And Trey Parker singing the song, I'm a man. Now you're a man is incredibly horny to me because that's pretty hot. I've always wanted to see it. I mean, I love Trey Parker and Matt Stone, so I can't believe I missed that one. It's so under the radar. It's probably the most underrated comedy they ever made. It's so great. My classic movie horny pick is Brief Encounter. Brief Encounter radiates some horny factor i'm a big fan do you just want to tell people because that's such a great movie the david lean brief encounter from the 1930s yes from a modern perspective i think chenwood park's the handmaiden is like a new erotic thriller kind of classic it sort of blends leans maybe a little bit more into horny but i think it has a lot of the erotic thriller tendencies especially as you get to the second half of the movie i've read some different interpretations of things but it has a a reputation of being even though it is a male directed because the focus is on female pleasure within its very long sex scenes is working within character that i think is interesting and then the other two modern movies i think are are horny in nature that are also really good are anna biller's the love witch from 2016 which is this great sort of comedy drama like with a little bit of horror sprinkled in about a witch who brings men to her to kill them it's great and honestly, Portrait of a Lady on Fire takes a lot of the tropes, traditionally, of things directed by men and plays them in ways that I think emotionally resonate with the characters that make it so effective, where she sort of 
uses all of these like horny traits about like these close-ups of like the way hands touch like what a hand on the cheek means it's like the physical and emotional intimacy of things that make something inherently horny i think portion of lady on fire does incredibly and the way it focuses on how that relates to character i think is fantastic and it's not really well thought out it's incipient but one of the things that i'd love to see it's always interesting how we progress, if you want to call that progress and then regress. But I think we're in an era where it is wonderful that people who are LGBTQ feel in a better place, a more secure place in terms of expressing themselves and their sexuality, and that they don't have to worry about. No, I'm not saying it's gone. There's still a lot of a lot of it around phobic reactions around. But I think that the sensitivity and acceptance and awareness that the spectrum of sexuality is a spectrum is great. And I just love to see cinema <laughs> catch up with that. And I don't think it's so hard to make a movie that has an exuberance for sexuality, but this time it's not just white male heterosexuality. You can have an exuberance for female sexuality. You can have an exuberance for gay male sexuality. You can have an exuberance for bisexuality. And there's no reason why that can't happen if you just push your imagination a little bit and or work with a team where someone can say, well, this is how, you know, when I'm turned on. This is sort of how I get turned on. This is what I see. And then be honest to that and have that moment in the movie. I think the answer that people have had is there's such a fear of expressing sexuality that's like, let's just not even deal with it to go to Daniel's point, which is let's just let's just get rid of that sort of thing that we, we don't know how to do altogether. And consequently, I think we're living in a time that's just so weird, so puritanical and not healthy and not constructive. Everybody is expressing their sexuality in judgment and anger and attacking other groups because there's not this outlet to be like, hey, it's okay to be horny and not yet have had sex. It's going to happen in your own time. It's okay to see, you know, you're going to discover what turns you on and who you're into, and that's okay. And I just think that maybe we can be part of the solution in the movies that we make by returning to a healthy medium, a healthy middle ground from where wherever we're at right now, which I don't think is healthy, especially in American cinema. And making sure that the people telling the stories, that we give avenues to the filmmakers who are those people that can tell them rather than expecting, rather than giving stories to the traditional line of people to make them. If you want those stories told and told right, then you give them to the parties that are being portrayed. And I think that only benefits us all because it educates and expands. Moving on to pop culture and final thoughts. Edwin, bubbling with enthusiasm and energy. Look at that face. You look like you're about to take off to the moon. Well, I want to thank Daniel for waking me up at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. I was enjoying a nice sleep because I worked all night yesterday. I'm back a little CS3. It's cool. Congrats, man. That's huge. Now now everyone knows where to find you. <laughs> uh, I'm there every day. It's nice to see uh, 35 prints in the little stairway. Like, oh, wow, we have a 35 projector in Cinema 1. That's weird. It's good to make popcorn, you know, stuff like that, serve people drinks, and uh, cleaning up the theater, which is fun, I guess. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. I saw Sean Penn. He, he walked out of Cinema 3 and just walked right past by us, and I saw, I told my coworkers, that's Sean Penn, man. Is, that's, uh, that's Macaulay. And then went inside to do a Q&A for his new movie. And then uh, I met Adam Marcus, who directed Jason Goes to Hell. He was so kind enough to sign my DVD, and uh, I got a picture of him, so that was pretty nice. And also, 
I'm very excited that uh, Criterion just announced their November thing. I don't care about Citizen Kane. I just care about Once Upon a Time in China, the complete film set, which I'm excited for. We should clarify, Criterion announced that their first lineup of 4K releases is happening with Citizen Kane, Mulholland Drive, and there was one other one. Menace Society and uh, The Red Shoe, I believe. They're making the jump to 4K with that technology, and it includes a Blu-ray for people, so it kind of gives you a chance that if you're going to buy something, you can buy something that future-proofs you and brings the clarity, sort of what they do best, that much closer to how it was, I think, envisioned to be from a clarity perspective. Now the people on Blu-ray.com are going to have to find something else to bitch about. Well, now they're just going to be mad about what they announced. And also, I I watched uh, the Val Kilmer documentary, which was incredible, very emotional, you know. That man, wow, probably the greatest actor to ever perform on stage after watching that documentary. Yes, I freaking said it, man. Sue me. Hey, Val Kilmer in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Horny. So James Gunn's new movie, The Suicide Squad, came out. I don't necessarily know if I need to, like, shut it out too much. I'm sure it's doing pretty well. I can't recommend it enough. Gunn kind of has, very similar to my own personal tastes, this kind of weird mix of broad and off-putting. His two Guardians movies are movies that my mom loves. And yet the two movies he made before that, which my mom has not seen, I'm sure she would hate. And this movie, The Suicide Squad, is a interesting blend of the two. I can't recommend it enough. I also wanted to shout out very briefly, if anyone hasn't watched it, that Day of Rage video that New York Times did about the January 6th siege at the Capitol. I don't know what else to call it. It's like this 40-minute long video. The middle part of it specifically is becomes like a Bourne movie almost, where it's like, it'll zoom in. It's like, well, this was happening on this side of the building, and it'll zoom out. This was, and like gives you like a good timeline of how that all happened. It's also terrifying and enraging <laughs> to watch. I also can't recommend that enough. And I can't recommend enough for you to go to twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz and watch me play video games. I'll second Connor's The Suicide Squad because I'm sure it's doing great, but it is a really lovely experience. And I watched it with my wife, Rachel, who was unsure about it, though she is a fan of Guardians and was very taken with it. I also saw Annette, the Laos Carex movie. I don't know how I'd go about recommending it to people because it is (laughs) is truly bizarre. It's in a way, um, The Umbrellas of Shabar, it, I think, is very inspired by that because it is very much a movie of I will speak mostly spoken word of everything that people are talking about. It's wild. I don't know how else to say it. And White Lotus, this HBO limited series about a bunch of people at a resort in Hawaii that is this anxiety-driven comedy drama about awful white people came to an end yesterday and it's really good and i think it's going to kind of be like that little summer gym of tv shows at least from what i've seen on twitter and i highly recommend it if you can avoid stuff on twitter about it it's just a, a joy with a really great cast when we show movies at the secret movie club it will inspire me to rethink them or reevaluate them when i was younger and i had more time and i didn't have three children i often loved to read movie books i loved to read interviews kislowski on kislowski lynch on lynch i still do that but i don't do it as often as i used to just by sheer end of time but we're showing kislowski's three colors trilogy and we show 
showed blue and it hit me completely differently than it hit me when I was 19. And it was obvious to me why the main character in blue, Juliette Binoche is married. She has a daughter and she loses her husband and daughter in the first few minutes of the movie. And when I was 19, I saw it one way and I thought, oh, what a, you know, an interesting movie, man, that was kind of heavy and a downer. And now as a, someone in their forties, I see it. And it's very profound and interesting in ways that I, I didn't pick up on. So I got Kislowski on Kislowski, a great book of interviews with him. And then I got the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. I'm sorry. The book of scripts. Decalogue is my favorite thing that he ever did. And the intro to the Decalogue is written by Stanley Kubrick. And Stanley Kubrick says that Kislowski and his screenwriter, whose name I'm going to butcher, I'm so sorry, Christoph Pisevich. I hope I'm saying it right. I'm sorry if I'm not. And they basically wrote everything from the Decalogue on. He said that they were two of the most talented writers he'd ever met. And Kozlowski was one of the most talented directors he'd ever met for taking ideas and themes and turning them into action. So it's not just people sitting around talking about God or people sitting around talking about no God or people sitting around talking about sex or free will or determinism, which I think is often what filmmakers, even at their best, end up doing. He said somehow they would absorb these really heavy themes into action and idea and they'd come up with a story. And I think Kurosawa was brilliant at that. I think Kubrick was brilliant at that. And now that I rewatch Kislowski, I go, oh, and Kislowski was brilliant at that. And it's something I've always struggled with because I've always wanted to make movies about free will versus determinism. That's something that I'm fascinated by, but I don't want characters sitting around talking about free will versus determinism. And I've always wanted to make movies about God and atheism and no God and people's views on that. But I don't want people sitting around talking about it. I want it to be the movie to come out in action. So for people who have not watched Kislowski, I'd highly recommend really, if you don't watch anything else, watch the Decalogue, his cycle of 10 one-hour movies about the Ten Commandments. It is not preachy. It is not religious. And I've said this before, but Kubrick was an avowed atheist, I believe, his entire life. And for Kubrick to write the intro to the Decalogue tells you how all-reaching the Decalogue is to all sorts of sensibilities. And I would just highly encourage people to check out their work because they really do crack the cinematic nut of how do you get into really difficult themes cinematically. Um, and you do it, of course, through story and action. This weekend, when you hear this, Friday night, you can come see Virgin spring and last house on the left saturday you can come see terminator 2 and total recall at the million dollar saturday night you can come see kislowski three colors white three colors red that was not conscious but you can see it in action on 35 millimeter it was subconscious i'm sure as always i want to thank connor lloyd cruz our chief creative content officer who edits everything secret movie club episode 70 will be movies that get repurposed whether fan edits gets made of them or they develop a following that befuddles their filmmaking like the Coens are avowedly confused at how the Big Lebowski is their most revered and loved movie. I don't know if they're really that confused, but they say they are. Uh, you know, we, we're doing El Ultimo Squalo. We're doing a live redub of an Italian Jaws ripoff. What's that? You could talk about Kung Pao, Edwin. Oh, well, basically, what's up, Tiger Lily? So that's what we're going to be talking about next week. As always, you can find out about what we do, our entire schedule at secretmovieclub.com. You can follow us across all social media. We have a newsletter. You can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. 
moviecomedyclub.com or podcast at secretmovieclub.com. All right, guys, thank you. It was great to be together again. I look forward to talking next week. Daniel Godspeed from Florida. Edwin, congrats on being back at the Los Feliz 3. And thank you, Connor, for editing Attack of the Giant Leeches, which everybody can now hear for free on our YouTube channel as an example of what we're going to talk about next week. And uh, that's it. All right, guys, have a great week. Bye, citizens. Should I mention my name, um, Daniel? That's, that's kind of purple. I'm sorry. You my name. I mean, I, I love John Cena, man, but you don't mention my name. I, I did all this for you. You said I couldn't. Mistake. I was trying to bring it up. What did you do for Daniel? I did everything, man. No, you stay in Florida. You stay in a up state. It's hot.